All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today, audience favorite Owen Thomas is back on the show, this time for an analysis episode. This is not so much a straight-up interview like we usually do, so much as it's a free-form discussion designed to help us, and to help me specifically, establish the context for the dot-com era sort of similar to the Maggie Mehar episode from last month. One small bit of housekeeping before we get started. Next week's episode will be coming out Tuesday morning, not Monday morning, as is usual. You'll learn why that is next week. In the meantime, please enjoy this conversation with Owen Thomas. Owen Thomas, thanks for coming back on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So, uh, Owen, last episode that that you were on, we were mostly talking about your career. Um, I wanted to have you back on because I wanted to talk to you about maybe your career uh, covering the dot-com era um, and hopefully, um, you know, bring some recollections about, about what that era was like uh, from roughly 97 to the end of 2000. When you start really covering um, tech as a reporter, that's when you started at Red Herring, right? That's right, in 1997. And so Red Herring, Red Herring had been around for a while, even before the 90s, right? Uh, no, Red Herring got its start in the early 90s. Okay. Um, it actually was founded by Tony Perkins, who had um, started a another similar magazine called Upside. Mm-hmm. Um, he had some kind of falling out with his backers or partners. I forget the details, but he he went off and started Red Herring. It was originally conceived of as more of a newsletter, like in you know, kind of an you know an industry information sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, um, given today's news, uh, as we're talking, Oculus is um, holding a press event about the Oculus Rift. Right. I believe that first issue. Um, was was about virtual reality. Hmm. So, you know, everything 
everything um, everything old is is new again. So this was some twenty two years ago. Um, you know, we, we talk about virtual reality, talk about um, cloud computing, which is really just a reincarnation of client server from, you know, from the 90s when that was big. Everything moves in cycles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the technology improves, the, the words change. But um, many of the things you see people working on, they were working on in the dot-com era. You know, people are buzzing about Instacart. Um, well, in the nineties, we had Webvan. Mm -hmm. you know, all of these things existed. They just, they just weren't that good. Right. Um, but people, people were trying, you know, all these ideas. Mm -hmm. So when, when you, you started at Red Herring as a reporter, your beat is Silicon Valley? Uh, we styled ourselves as covering the, um, the business of technology and the technology of business. Mm -hmm. um, our, you know, our beat was really venture capital backed startups. Mm -hmm. The philosophy, especially for the website, was, you know, if it, um, you know, if it, uh, if it got venture capital, it's worth writing about. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, again, everything, you know, everything old is new again. But, that's that's the, the critique that people make of, say, TechCrunch tech or VentureBeat these days. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that I've been pointing out in episodes is that um, the, the, the dot-com era was really a compressed period of time. I mean, things like Netscape and uh, Amazon and eBay, all these things start out in 95. But it's not until really 97 and 98 that all of a sudden everything's a dot-com Everyone's like, well, uh, I will sell pet food online. We'll, you know, do airline tickets online. You know, all this, all this stuff happens in this really compressed period of time, right at the end of the '90s. So this is the this is the exact period you're covering. When was there a sense as a reporter that, you know, every every week you go into work and there's yet another new story popping up all of a sudden? It's like whack a mole covering covering all these startups. Oh, yeah. I mean, for, you know, for a news hound, right, technology has always been a great beat because by definition, it's about the new. But there was definitely a an endless drumbeat of news. And remember, we didn't have Twitter. Um, not all not all companies really had their head around email. I remember getting faxes at the Red Herring with press releases. Actually, I remember getting press releases in the mail, which boggled my mind. I mean, the sheer waste, especially mm -hmm. sometimes people would FedEx me a press release. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I guess they didn't, they didn't trust email, but they trusted FedEx. Um, the, um, yeah, the, the volume definitely picked up. I, what I remember in 97 is that you know we, we, we would be lucky if we could find one venture-backed tech startup a lot of venture venture capital firms at, back then were kind of hedged their bets they would do 50 percent consumer meaning you know kind of like fast food restaurants mm -hmm. or mall retail chains that kind of thing and 50 percent tech you know or less like 25 percent information technology which is what they would call internet startups back then tech tech For, only funds were rare Yes, yes, that was, you know, that was, um, and it was even notable if someone was really specialized in tech. 
when uh, what are some of the first companies that you remember uh, covering? Some of the first startups, specifically. Oh gosh! Um, in '97, there was uh, there was it was all about the portals. It was Yahoo, Excite, Lycos. Those were the companies to cover. I'm. I think the very first story I remember filing for Red Herring was about um, was about layoffs in Excite's editorial department. Mm. And that sentence doesn't even make sense now. What's right. Excite? Right, you know? right. You know, even, even talking about web portals is incredible. Also, that, that, that brings to mind, like, a, a, another thought that I've had a lot that it seemed like the, the types of startups came in, in cycles and in waves. And so from month to month, I remember, you know, all of a sudden the, the news would be, okay, B2B is the new flavor of the month. You know, there was a time period when B2C commerce was the flavor. And then all of a sudden the next month it would be, no, 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 it's going to be uh, healthcare is going to be transformed by tech. Do you, do you remember that as well? That like, you know, it was such a wide open world back then that every new idea that came down the pike, it was like, no, 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 this is the bright, shiny new thing. All the startups are going to be doing this. Oh yeah, I mean there was you know there was definitely a lot of trend chasing. I remember it um, especially in um, in business software in B two B. There would be CRM, then there would be ERP, then there would be EMA. What's that? Enterprise marketing automation. It's what we would call Salesforce nowadays, right? Right. Uh, but um, it. It was a, it was a category, and when there was a new category, suddenly I would get three pitches at once for three different companies that were trying to own it, without any real sense that um, <laughs> that it was worth owning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What also, I mean, the that that other uh, that idea of that uh, an idea is out there, and then all of a sudden there are thirteen startups that are all doing the same thing, uh, like our. our episode last week was we talked to uh, one of the founders of when.com that was you know a web-based calendar startup so at, you know at the point when when they launched there are I, I found a list there were literally 13 other startups doing web-based calendars and the same thing would happen with you know when uh, there was web-based email and that sort of thing so as as a rep- oh yeah i mean web-based email that was that was a whole um in in the space of a few months Lycos bought Whoware, Yahoo bought Rocketmail, mm-hmm. and Microsoft most famously bought Hotmail. And so everyone, you know, everyone suddenly checked that box for web-based email. And you know, the thing is like where did where did it all go? I mean, arguably Hotmail became the foundation of Microsoft's cloud business. Um for Yahoo, uh having having that email actually became the login, you know, there's a reason why you would have a Yahoo account. Um, and, and yet they all got bought, they, they all got beat by Gmail, right? Right. Also, the, um, as a reporter, I was going to ask, like, how do you, if, if all of a sudden there's a new category and there's 13 players in it, like, how, how do you figure out, I mean, I guess that's the game, is they're all trying to get your attention so that they can seem like they're the leading player in the space. But, like, how do you suss out who, who the real players are? Is it based on uh, who's backing them, the VCs that are backing them, that sort of thing? You know, I, I, have, um, I have a really 
strong belief about this. In the 90s, when I was first covering venture capital, the, the investor who backed a startup was a strong signal. Now, I think there are, there's so much venture capital and so many startups, it's, it's just essentially noise. Like It has no meaning that this company was backed by Sequoia or that company was backed by Kleiner or that company was backed by Andreas Horowitz or that company went through Y Combinator. I think it's all noise nowadays. I mean, it is the, the only meaning is kind of the social meaning attributed to it. The way um, I heard a great story the other day about how one of my colleagues actually got hit on uh, at the battery by a startup founder who said, Well, you know, my startup's in Y Combinator, mm. as if this was supposed mm. to impress her. You know, I think that's I, I think they've devolved into brand names. You know, there's no there's no real meaning to it. It's just arbitrary and um, <laughs> arbitrary and random. Um, who gets a deal? It's, social proof has become such a disease that um, you know, really, all you know, all you know about a startup is that their investors heard someone else wanted to invest in it, and so they're investing in it. And and yet in the nineties there there was actually some signal there there was some meaning mm-hmm. um, and it was interesting to try to suss that out it was interesting to see um, XL Partners for example made a big bet on online video now I don't think by and large they they did really well on it they had real networks um, which went public and I think XL did did nicely off of that mm-hmm. um, but for the most part. They kind of stumbled, and they really didn't um, kind of revive their their good name as a go to firm until they invested in Facebook. Mm-hmm. The um, sort of coming back to what you were just talking about about you know um, the the guy bragging about his startup as as like a you know a, a badge of honor or something. Like, do you remember when it started to get that? that gold rush mentality where people were coming out to the Valley and, and starting any old.com and imagining that in, in 16 months or something that they can IPO and be worth a hundred million dollars. Like did, did you, was there a feeling on the ground of, okay, all of a sudden everybody's here and it's, it's, it's greed is here. I mean, it was definitely in, you know, it was definitely happening in 99. In fact, that was part of my thinking in, um, in taking a job at Time Inc., I kind of wanted to, um, you know, try something new, step back a little from the, you know, from the budding insanity. What what I didn't count on is that I really missed San Francisco. There's something there's something magical about the city beyond um, beyond it being the heart of the tech industry, which is how most people know it or think of it now. Um, and I ended up missing it, but I I, I remember thinking you know, this, this can't last. Of course, I turned around and, you know, one year later, moved back pretty much into the, um, into the throat of the dot-com bust. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, uh, in March, in March 2000, the NASDAQ hit its peak. Everyone talks about the NASDAQ crashing. Right. It was really like a slow motion, um, a slow motion implosion. Right over the course of about a year or, or eighteen months or so, yeah. Um, but but back to 
the the feeling that because m- one of my pet theories is is that you know the true signs of a bubble are when the charlatans start to show up and you know there were cases of startups that were outright frauds but i'm also talking about the people that would uh start a company raise a, a 10 million dollar round and then blow five million of that round on a, a launch party in vegas or something like that you know what i mean well that was that was the case with one of the you know one of the big frauds um i think you're thinking of pixelon um possibly yeah which was uh just this hilarious story of a an online video startup that that had nothing, no technology, no deals. They threw this big launch party in Vegas, and that was, you know, that was pretty much their their proof point that they were um, a player. Yeah, right. That they were a player. Um, but I think you know, I, I think what what's easy to forget now um, in the age of Amazon Web Services and all these other kind of plug and play, um, get your company started services, is it, it's. It was legitimately really expensive to be on the internet at scale in in the nineties. You would you would have to pretty much know someone and at say Sun Microsystems right. and beg them for a server that was actually capable of um, of serving web pages without crashing immediately. And um, you know I. I remember crazy stories like Excite. Um, Excite needed uh, a new software license um, because there was, by by and large, no open source software. So right, right. They had to call. Um, they had to call the Tokyo office of um, of Sun and buy a, I think a Solaris license that was um, that was Sun's operating system, a Unix operating system akin to Linux but commercially sold and they, they had to call Tokyo to buy it because they needed it right away. The um, you know Menlo Park headquarters was closed and it was the only way to do it. Nowadays this, this would just seem ridiculous because you would just go to your AWS dashboard and spin up a new instance and you know and just go about your business but you know we're talking tens of thousands of dollars for software license hundreds of thousands of dollars per machine for servers so you could easily blow millions of dollars before you've served one web page and and we're not even talking about salaries and um you know salaries probably now uh they they would seem modest but you were still you know paying a good amount if you could you know if you could find them for um for web engineers and um and and you had to you had to invent the wheel because it had not you know it had not previously been invented the other the other thing that was happening especially in 99 is a lot of big companies were waking up to the web and they needed a strategy. They needed a website. Um, they needed, you know, e-commerce, and they needed it now. So you had all of these companies: Scient, Viant, March First. All of these, you know, I think you would call them like digital agencies now, but they, um, they called themselves, you know, all these fancy terms. I think systems integrators. Um, you know, they were essentially building websites, but it's kind of like having McKinsey build a website for you. Like it was, you know, it was very expensive. But 
you didn't have a choice because there's no way you could hire the the people with these web skills on your own and there was no way you could um you know you you didn't have the people who could come up with the strategy so Scient, Viant, um, all the rest would come up with a strategy, um, and you know, and then actually execute it, and you know, and fast. I th- so, the- I think that's a good point. Like you know, in our in popular memory, we remember you know the IPOs, but there's also much, so much money sloshing around because you know, um, like we said, you know, you do a calendar startup, you get bought by Exciter, you get bought by Yahoo, or you get bought by AOL. But also at the same time, there's all this money sloshing around because suddenly everybody from Hallmark cards to GM to anything suddenly has to have some sort of a website, some sort of a, a digital strategy, and so all this money is sloshing around to try to make that happen all at once overnight. Yeah, so I mean, these companies were um, were going public. Scient, um, Scient was founded in 1997 and went public in '99. Um, and you know, I think their their offering was only sixty million dollars, which seems um, you know it, it seems like such a small amount compared to the the huge private rounds that companies are now raising. Right. Um, but it was much easier to go public than then. It was, you know, this was before um, Sarbanes-Oxley, before before all the regulation um, came down. And you know, the other thing is the the big investment banks had all set up shop um, in San Francisco and Palo Alto, and they were just churning out these IPO documents left and right. I was going to. I was going to say that that that's that's a key point too because I, I spoke to a, a Barron's reporter a couple of weeks ago, and she made the point that at some point it's like the 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 switch is flipped, and suddenly the banks need companies any company to IPO because now they've gotten hooked on on all these all these fees and 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 the M and A and that sort of thing. And did you did you get a sense of that too? Like there 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 comes a period when. You know, it's almost like Wall Street is is lighting the fire of, of of this madness as well. Right, you've got a machine, and you need to you know you need to stoke it with uh, with fuel. You need more product to sell, um, and and there was absolutely individual investor demand. Um, you know, I think that's a big difference between between then and now like you don't you don't really hear people talking in the street about like oh i, w- I want to get in on on the uber ipo say um i think you know i i think there's a sense that um that game's kind of rigged now um especially with especially with the big private rounds right uh, you, you really don't have a way of getting in right uber's not going to ipo for anything less than 100 million market cap so you, you you miss your chance to, to get that 100x or whatever return from just the IPO. Yeah, I mean, people people always hold up Pets.com as this, like, giant value-destroying disaster. And the truth is, it you know, I think its total market value when it IPO'd was around 80, 83 million. Right. Um, so, you know, if you go from 83 million to zero, I mean, that's bad for all the investors, but... By the way, Amazon took most of that hit because they were the largest investor in Pets.com. Um, and yes, like definitely some some widows, orphans, and other public market investors 
um, got hurt in that IPO. But the the destruction of value that happened in um, in the dot com bust it was it was Oracle, it was Microsoft, it was Sun, definitely it was Yahoo. You know those were those were the companies that torched billions of dollars in shareholder equity. Um, this will be sort of a hard one, but did you ever? What was the sense among either reporters or among the 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 people in the startups that you're covering that, you know, when we're looking back on it in retrospect, like inevitably, like, boy, I hope you, I hope you went public before the bubble burst. I hope you, you know, cashed out your, your options before the bubble burst or something in, in like, let's say 99, how much of a sense was there that people were walking on eggshells, just waiting for the hammer to fall? Or, or was it the opposite? What did people really believe no, this is this is different. This will never end. The music will never stop. Um, I think it, I think it took a long time for that to kind of sink in. Um, the you know the, the thing is, um, very few very few employees actually kind of got out with their with their equity. Um, if you think about when when these IPOs were happening, um, so let's say you know. Let's say you work at Scient, um, and the company goes public in the middle of '99. It's the end of the year mm-hmm. before um, before you can even uh, sell because of uh, because of a lockup imposed on employee shares. And by the way, you were probably hired in like you know January or March of '99, so you're not even going to best your first tranche of shares until March 2000. Well, what happens in March 2000? The bust, and suddenly right. your options are underwater. So, what do you do with them? Do you, you know, do you ex, you know, do you exercise them when they're when the stock is trading at a lower price than your strike price? No, that's that's silly. Then you get laid off, and you've got ninety days to you know to figure out what you do with your options. They're still underwater, and you know you haven't made a dime on this big you know big promise of equity. Well, um, and then you have you have companies like let's say the Globe, which you know has a rocket IPO, but then for the the remainder of its of its publicly traded life, it's just sort of a slow descent down. So like, you know, if if you're hired on, I'm, I'm joining the Globe the week after it IPOs, you're, like your ne- your options are never going to be anywhere essentially. Yeah, that's right, um, and um, and I think that that's. You know, it's. I, I mean, I you know, I guess we shouldn't really weep for all these kids with their you know, with the free Adwala and you know all the all the perks that they had, but um, but um, they really like by and large like they did not make out in the in the dot com bubble. Um, now insiders definitely did. You know if. If you're a venture capital firm and you you know you had it written up that you could immediately sell in the IPO um, or flip your shares to your limited partners, then you were set. Right. Well, and and you know you wonder how many people actually um, were able to pull a a Mark Cuban, you know, and walk walk away as a billionaire. Just because you got the timing exactly right, you know, it, it it is such a compressed period of time at the end. 
so many companies IPO in 98, 99. And so there's no real, there's no, there's not a big enough window for people to, to, to pull a Cuban, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, um, and you really, you have to get the timing right. I mean, Cuban didn't just get the timing right. He had, um, he had really good financial advice on, um, on, you know, creating, you know, I think it was collars that protected him from, um, from right. a crash in Yahoo stock, which in fact happened, um, did not make him popular back at Yahoo headquarters, but it's not Mark Cuban's problem. Um, I've asked a, uh, several people what, you know, I'm, I'm feeling around for what the actual pin was that, that started to pop the bubble. And, and my own personal theory was that it was maybe, um, uh, ad rates starting to go down because under underpinning a lot of everything happening was always this idea that, you know, um, it, the web was the next great advertising medium. And so that was underpinning so many startups that were advertising, you know, the, the, the vicious cycle of the advertising. Do you have a, a recollection or, or a theory of what it was that, that started to really prick the bubble and, and started to make things turn? So that, that theory is, um, it's not quite right. Because okay. you didn't you didn't have the phenomenon um, that you have now, like in the in the Google era of ad rates being set by auction, being you know essentially driven by a market rate. They were sold the old-fashioned way, you know, salespeople having drinks with media buyers, and you know, and and inking some big like year-long uh, year-long campaign. Um, the the ad deals that were being done is like. Pets.com um, bidding with against you know PetSmart and like the five other online pets re- retailers to be the anchor um, anchor tenant of Yahoo Pets to you know quote unquote power Yahoo Pets. In other words, turn Yahoo Pets into a big ad. Um, and you know AOL and Yahoo and the other portals to a lesser extent were just going to the bank because if you were a um if if you were a startup and you could say that you you know you have this partnership with Yahoo then that would be enough or so the theory went for you to you know get more investment and then go public um so it was really like all of these all of these advertising deals being funded by venture capital in an attempt to get more investment, either more venture capital or public market money. And so once you, you know, once you uh, pulled out that, um, once you pulled out the venture capital infusion that was going in, um, suddenly CNET, Yahoo, you know, all of these folks saw their, their business just fizzle up because they weren't, they weren't real ads. They weren't, you know, ads trying to gain market share, sell products, right? You know, or or what have you. They were ads being purchased to, um, being purchased to drive um, appearances, um, and often they were, you know, like they were very circular. Like NBC invested in a um in a search engine called snap mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and renamed it mbci mbc internet and they they essentially 
pumped all this advertising into it. So, you know, it could, it could show that um, it was, you know, it was getting all of this money in, but it was all, it was all fake dollars because it was NBC paying NBC essentially. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, so what you're saying is that it's it's almost like the, the, the gravy train sort of exhausted itself at some point, and then since... Yeah, you know the fire hose was was so strong that any any tapering down all of a sudden caused everything to collapse. Yeah, and the the only thing that fixed it was um, was Google coming along and um, creating this way to buy ads mm-hmm. uh, that was very cheap and simple. And so you know, mom and pop stores could buy ads. Right. Well, and then all of a sudden, because I remember this clearly, that. Um, there was a time again when you could you could do a startup and say, oh, we'll make our money with with the hosting the AdSense, you know, like so, like creating a viable marketplace for advertising again. Yeah, I mean, in, in you know, in both directions, like funding, you know, uh, making it simple to buy ads, making it simple to sell ads, um, and that you know that picked up a lot of latent demand. Like these are folks who would never never buy TV ads, would never buy magazine ads, right? Because it's, you know, it's too expensive, it's too complicated. It's just not, you know, it's not realistically going to happen. Um, So that, you know, that actually brought, like, new demand into the system. And then, you know, when people started seeing, like, how effective these online ads were, um, you started having bigger companies say, oh, you know, like, people are searching for you know, Louis Vuitton, maybe I should buy a Google ad and get out and, you know, get out in front of them. Um, and you started having big brands come, you know, come back to the internet after having been burned by buying uh, banner ads in the, um, in the, in the wild nineties. Um, a couple more uh, recollections. Um, I remember really clearly um, having dinner with some friends that, that worked at startups in New York and, and, and Silicon Alley and having dinner and then saying, oh man, it was such a tough week at work uh, this week because it came down from on high. We've got to make money. <laughs> you know, this, this just spending, spending, spending has got to stop. And all of a sudden we, we've got to, we've got to start, 
you know, getting in the black. Um, and, and when I spoke to the, the Barron's reporter, she said a similar thing. Like her theory was that at some point, what really caused the bubble to burst was Wall Street just got fed up and was like, we're, 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 we're tired of, um, you know, giving all these startups enough rope, enough rope, enough rope. Okay, we need to start getting a return now. Uh, do you remember a period like that happening when all of a sudden the, the switch was hit and, and okay, the, the, the music's off and, and you got to find a chair? Well, it's funny that you mentioned Barron's because it was famously um, a, a Barron's cover story that um, called bullshit on uh, especially e-commerce startups. Um, Amazon in, in particular, too, at the time. Amazon.bomb. Right. Know? So I think they were probably wrong about Amazon, right about every other e-commerce startup. I mean, you know, like none of the, you know, none of these are around, right? E-Toys, Cosmo, um, got uh, Newegg. Is that still around? I think uh, it is, yeah. Buy.com. Right, right. I mean, you know, a lot of a, a lot of these a lot of these names have come back under some, you know, under under different ownership, but um they just, you know, blew up and fizzled away in the um in the nineties. The um so I think I think the that Barron's cover story definitely definitely started the conversation. Um but I don't think it was as much pressure from wall street that you know oh like you need to you know you need to start showing profit it was just a kind of um a failure of the collective suspension of disbelief all at once it was really just kind of market psychology saying um saying oh my gosh like i'm not gonna find someone to flip this you know, to, to flip the stock to, um, when you started having IPOs fizzle, you know, so you didn't have this enormous first day pop, um, that hurt the next IPO. It was, it was entirely driven as far as I could tell by market psychology rather than any kind of, um, any kind of reliance on like actual metrics. Um, I mean, Pets.com was was losing money hand over fist. And the, the hilarious thing, I did an analysis, and what I discovered is that um, the more Pets.com spent on marketing, the less traffic it got to its website. <laughs> they were inversely correlated. And, um, I mean, it makes sense if you think it, you know, if you think about it, Pets.com was buying TV ads. So, in 99, 2000, the majority of consumers weren't even online. If they were online, how many of those people um, have any experience buying stuff online? Of those people, how many are pet owners? You know, it, was, it was incredibly untargeted. And it's almost inconceivable to us today you know, to imagine an advertising campaign like that. Well, of course you would target like pet websites and you would um you would use facebook ads and you know find, like targeted specifically like you know i'm sure pet owners are a category you can buy on facebook and and twitter and you know and the like but we didn't have any of that advertising technology so the only in you know in pets.com's defense it was kind of the only option to like 
uh, reach a bunch of people. It just made no economic sense at all to do that. Well, finally, I, I we should probably uh, say a little bit about the bust and, and what came after because you go back to business 2.0 um, and so you're essentially there for, for the, the nuclear winter, as it were. Um, so <laughs> all of your contacts, all these people that you've been covering, where are they all of a sudden in, in 2001, 2002? And, and what sort of stories now are you covering? Because I, I sort of have a memory of there was this vague sense of, yeah, well, that fad is over. But of course, we know it wasn't. So what was the environment like right in, in the nuclear winter, as it were? Well, I, it, it was definitely tough. Um, I remember in, in 2002, 2003, we kind of redefined the magazine around business opportunity and innovation wherever we could find it. So that might be, you know, like at big companies, um, and it might be um, military contractors. You know, it's like it was it was a boom time for um, for these contractors and. So we even looked at those. We were covering kind of the nascent real estate bubble. Um, the good thing for us is that Web 2.0 actually came along um, fairly fairly quickly. So um, we had uh, one of the first stories about Flickr. You know, we were um, we were covering uh, well uh, towards the end. There. Friendster is 2002, I think. Maybe I'm misremembering that. 2002, 2003. Yeah, you know, so the, so there were, you know, there there were these um, little companies popping up um, who we could write about, um, but it was, you know, it was it was definitely tough. And you know, we um, oh, actually, you know, one of our writers, Paul Sloan, made a beat out of domain name speculation. Mm. So you had all of these folks who had like snapped up domain names during the bubble, and um, you know they were they were kind of stuck with them, and they wanted to figure out how to make money with them some way somehow. So these were a lot of the folks who were buying AdSense ads um, back in the day. Right, I remember that. So that you would just park it, and then um, you know whatever residual traffic came through, you know, with keyword based and that sort of thing. Yeah, and you know, so so we would talk to these folks um, and kind of figure out how they were making money and when when no one else was but yeah it was it was it was definitely it was definitely an interesting time and it was it was a challenge of like what are we going to write about or what are we going to find um you definitely had that uh that b2b mania um and you know and you definitely had <laughs> a lot of startups you, you know you never never heard much from because it was you know it was very hard to um it was very hard to exit right right during during that whole time there were not um there were not a ton of ips google though, right was um google Quiet, quietly killing it yeah um and um and so there were um like we we wrote about the google bus you know long before anyone else um we had our ear to the ground, so we just we wrote about um, this kind of quirky hippie dippy program Google had to you know to save the commute. It was it wasn't even about traffic back then because you could sail down 101 to Mountain View, um, 
but you know they wanted to, a more environmental way of of uh, of getting to work. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely tough to find stories. I mean, PayPal was one that I kind of um, you know was a company I paid a lot of attention mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. and um, and it's it's funny that they're still around, and it's funny that they're you know about to spin out and be be a public company again. Mm-hmm. Um, they had this epic battle with uh, with eBay, and then you know you blink your eyes and they you know <laughs> they sold out. Right. Um, but yeah, that that was a challenge, but but it was interesting, and you know we were. I'd say there were there were also a lot of people who were grateful that. Um, we were around to to cover technology at all right. because remember like by that point industry standard was gone the red herring was gone um there were you know fortune and you know and, and business week um even the new york times and wall street journal were paying far less attention to silicon valley so we had um you know we had a good chance to tell stories that other people weren't paying attention to Okay, final final question, and then I I swear I'll let you go. Um, pl- but play everyone's favorite parlor game with me real quick, especially based on what we've just been talking about. Compared to the '90s, are we in a bubble right now in tech? I don't think we're in a bubble of the same uh, of the same type or with the same consequences. I mean, when when the '90s dot com bubble uh, burst. The the damage was widely you know was widespread, right? You had you know you had everyone's four hundred one k in in tech stocks, um, because if your mutual fund manager was not invested in tech stocks, then he was probably losing his job. Um, if you were an analyst and you weren't bullish on tech stocks, you'd probably lost your job at that point. Um, so you know every like. Everyone had had a stake in the bubble, you know. These days, if you know, if Uber were to just, you know, somehow hit a ditch and you know and um, lose, you know, lose its enormous valuation, maybe go out of business. I don't know what that scenario is. Who would really be hurt? Right. That's what I said um, too. Yeah. Not its early investors because they've already sold out to these private equity. Um, these private equity funds, um, you know, the private equity funds would, would take a hit, but honestly, like they've got their bets spread all over the place and there is so much money sloshing around. I think that's a macroeconomic factor. You really have to get your head around, um, which is that, uh, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of excess capital looking for a home. And so it finds its way into these funds and from there it finds its way into tech startups because honestly, like, where are you going to do? Put it, put it in a bank. Um, I think some banks are even uh, paying negative interest at this point, meaning they're charging you money uh, to, to leave your money in there. Um, and, um, you know, you, you don't have a lot of good options for kind of, any kind of growth investment. So we're definitely not, you know, if we're in a bubble, we're not in the same bubble and it won't have the same consequences. Um, but I think, you know, is it, um, 
is it dangerous? I mean, I mean, what it's doing to uh, to real estate prices in the Bay Area is is very clear, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know that's absolutely driven by salaries. Like people see the salaries people make in tech, there aren't a lot of opportunities in um, in other fields that are anything close to um, you know close to that in terms of like how junior you can be and get a job and um, how quickly you can, you can rise up. So of course people are, you know, are moving in and chasing that opportunity. Um, and I think, I think that's dangerous in terms of San Francisco having, um, having a balanced economy. That said at the same, you know, at the same time, if, even if you look at the real estate bubble, the numbers, the, the, Employment in the tech sector doesn't really seem like it's enough to um, tip prices as strongly as um, you know as we've seen. So, um, so I think you know there there are other reasons that probably have a lot to do with foreign investment in um, in real estate. You definitely see it in London. Um, you see it in San Francisco and New York. And again, it's you know it comes down to all this money kind of sloshing around, um, and that's not a phenomenon of tech. That's a that's a macroeconomic phenomenon. But does it does it affect the technology sector? Absolutely. And you know how does it all play out? It's it's hard to say. But I think if you are, you know, if you're the um, if you're the CEO of a tech company. I would be thinking long and hard about interest rates. I'd be thinking long and hard about, um, you know, unrest in various parts of the world, um, the stability of various governments. It's it's a lot to worry about, and it's you know it's 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 a very different question from are we going to keep finding greater fools to uh, you know to pick up this latest e-commerce IPO. Before I let you go. Uh... Did you want to tell us anything uh, since we last spoke with you, you? You've got a new job. You're at Wearable World now, and um, is there what, what are you guys doing at Wearable World right now? Well, so it, so it's not a new job. Uh, but okay. I am I am uh, working for a new owner. So Wearable World bought ReadWrite in February, mm-hmm. and uh, so Wearable World is a startup incubator. And I know cue the uh, <laughs> cue the warning classes. Um, and we also run uh, we also run events, and now we have a media business too in in ReadWrite. Um, it hasn't really changed what we do for for our readers, but mm-hmm. it's uh, it's you know I'd say what's interesting is Wearable World is primarily a, a hardware incubator, and that brings a kind of different focus than um, you know than say uh, you know just uh, an incubator that's pumping out mobile apps. Like you have to actually make the hardware. You yeah. have to mm-hmm. design it correctly. You have to be able to manufacture it at scale and you know and at the right cost. The um, you know so so there's a reality to hardware that I think is um, sometimes more difficult to find in you know in say the software realm. Um, but um, you know, so so it's great to learn from these hardware entrepreneurs, and it's great to 
kind of get get back to some of the technology I feel like um, we we lost sight of in the internet bubble. It's it's great to talk about chips and uh, you know and radios and um, actual widgets. Actually, you know, actual widgets like stuff that does stuff. Um, and then it all it all ties back to internet software and services, right? Um, you know, it doesn't you, hardware doesn't really function unless it's connected. But I think that's you know that's something that makes it a bit of a, a, a different world nowadays. We have a you know we have folks like Fitbit and Pebble um, who are are producing real devices, um, and you know I think that too makes it makes it less of a bubble. You know, people are actually putting money down for for real goods, and um, they're not uh, they're not just betting that someone else is going to value this, um, you know, this share certificate more highly than they did. Well, Owen Thomas, I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much um, for helping us frame this and giving us the context. And also helping me frame it and giving me the context. It's it's useful to to bat around all these ideas and and try to get it right. What what the what the dot com bubble really was. Absolutely, my pleasure. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes, because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader